0: before us this morning of Romans chapter five, verses one through eleven. And as we have done in previous classes, we'll start by reading it out loud together in unison as we uh, explore this text. So, do we all have the text in front of us? Okay, good. Therefore. But God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. (coughs) This is one of those passages that teaches itself You kind of just read it and it's so clear, it's crystal clear. This is not one of the passages that you're confused what he's trying to say. This is not one of those passages that um, are so wrapped into theological uh, pathways and byways that you're a bit twisted up in your head trying to figure it out. It is so incredibly rich because of that. At the same time, It is incredibly deep. You can read this on a surface level and kind of capture it, but then you have to come back to it again and again and again, and each time you can go deeper into the swimming pool and never reach bottom. One commentator admitted, and this is a man who taught the Book of Romans pretty much every semester, at his, uh, at his Bible college for decades. So he's constantly teaching this over and over and over again. In his commentary on Romans, he has a chapter on this section and I basically gave it to you on page two of your handout Because he's kind of threw up his hands and went, I don't know how to teach this, so I'll just list all the blessings of justification and then he kind of came back through and talked a little, little bit about each one I was tempted to teach it the same way but I thought, you know, that, that's a clever way of doing it in fact, I would recommend using that second page in your own meditations this week or in the next few weeks, just pull it aside and look at each one of those statements because each statement is a massive statement of truth when I started looking at this, I thought, you know, we could do that, but we would kind of, we would tend to lose the context of the sentences. So instead, I'm gonna approach this more as a word study. So we're gonna go through key words and key, pa- key phrases in this passage to see what God is trying to t- teach us today. We may already know but it's been a while since we've we've rehearsed it in our minds to look at what Paul is written for us. The first word of course is therefore. What do you always say when you see the word therefore? What is it therefore? What what is it therefore? Why is there a therefore here? What has been taught prior to this chapter? chapter four is all about Abraham. Abraham is the example of justification by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he carries forward. So he's making a linkage to what he previously taught. And he's gone through chapter 1, which is an introduction to the idea of justification of God. Then chapter 2 is about the wrath of God. Chapter 3 is about the grace of God, for all have sinned. And here's the example of justification in Father Abraham. Therefore, the argument has been settled. Therefore we don't need to discuss whether or not justification is a truism or that it's av- it is, that it is available to everyone who believes. That argument's settled. Therefore since we have been means in the past. It's already happened. So now what? It, we have been justified by faith. Now, we've defined faith in many different ways in our conversations, but I found one in my uh, my reading this week that I thought was what you might find of interest. When missionary John Payton, P-A-T-O-N, was translating the scripture for the South Sea Islanders, He was unable to find a word in their vocabulary for the concept of believing, trusting, or having faith. He had no idea how he would convey that to them. So one day, while he was in his hut translating, a native came running up the stairs into Peyton's study, flopped into a chair, exhausted, and he said to Peyton, "Ah, It's so good to rest my whole weight in this chair. And Peyton had his word. That word, faith, is resting your whole weight on God. The word went into the translation of that New Testament and helped bring that civilization of natives to Christ. Believing is putting your whole weight on God. If God said it, then it's true, and we are to believe it. That idea of our entirety of Wait. We have been justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? What does it say? Peace with God. If we don't have the peace of God. That's a different thing. Make sure you understand that. There's, in fact, I was reading one uh, sermon and he flipped his words, and I don't think he realized he did it as he was preaching it, but he'd been starting with peace with God, and the last half of his sermon was talking about the peace of God. And he didn't make a transition, he just suddenly... Those are two different ideas, very different ideas. But to be have peace with God means at some point we didn't have peace with God. James 4.4 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You mean you are an enemy of God? Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Isaiah 59.2 Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. But now, you have peace with God. Not Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which is a phrase that was throughout the kingdom, throughout the empire. Augustus had instituted Pax Romana. That's peace through force. Through fear, I guess, you could even say. If you were to rise up, we'll step on you so that we can keep the peace. That's different. It also isn't inner tranquility that we can just kind of Oh, Aum, um, you know, we're going to have peace with God. That isn't what it's talking about either. So, I'm going to ask you, what does it mean to you, or if you were to teach this, what does it mean to have peace with God? How do you view, view a phrase like that? in this context. We're not in opposition with God because of our sin. Right. We are no longer in opposition because of our sin. That has been, as the verse, verses later say, has been reconciled. Okay? But what does that mean practically? That's theological, and I'm not gonna say, we can be, be theological, because there's am wrong with that. But what is the practical meaning of this? Let's dig in, yeah.
1: I don't have to have so much guilt.
0: You don't have to have the guilt.
1: And, and because he's now my friend.
0: He's now your friend, you are. Abraham was called a friend of God in Isaiah. Well, that's good. That's good. Any any other thoughts? Yeah. Well, the word enemy comes to mind. There's a big difference that you were making at the beginning about what peace of God as opposed to peace with God. Yeah. I mean, you have to think about it. Let's put it in non-divine terms. Let's just turn it into a secular conversation. Uh, the king of this world not Satan but the king of this world let's say we are in Russia the king of that world is Putin if you are not for him you're against him and if you speak out against him which a few have they are declared enemies of the state arrested and put in jail. Now you might go, oh, that's terrible. I said, no, it's the Russian way. They've been doing it forever. I mean, if you haven't read Solzhenitsyn and think about the gulags, they still exist. They're out there. We just don't talk about them as much. I'm an entire generation that knows not where Russia came from, the Soviet Union. That is an en- en- enemy Yeah. You know, thinking back to the word when we talked about propitiation, God being angry. Yeah, the wrath uh, of God. And Carl would
1: identify with this growing up in the old Catholicism. They were really good at making us feel like God was angry with us. Yeah. And the idea that we could just go to church and have peace with God—that—that was really hard to grasp. God was angry. Yeah, I get that.
0: Yeah. Um, Unless you did certain acts, unless you. uh, went to Mass, whether you confessed your sins and got all, did all the right rituals, then you would have a pass for a period of time anyway. And the guilt that was mentioned earlier was very much a big part of that. Yeah, False. A false Understand. guilt. Yeah. But here's the irony. There's actually, and I'm gonna counter this a little to say, there's actually some good elements The idea that you feel your sinfulness so viscerally. Their answer, however, is not biblical, at least as we understand it. So here you have the idea of grace being free, freely given, etc., without works. That's the transition. In fact, there's a, a little quote here from Martin Luther. I lived as a monk without reproach. I felt, however, I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I'm quoting him. This is his writing on Romans. I could not believe that God was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punished sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring, I was angry with God. And I said, it's not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity of the law of the Ten Commandments, without having God adding pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with righteousness and wrath thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted in his letter to the Romans. By the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, in the righteousness of God is revealed he who through faith is righteous shall, shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this was the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. The passive righteousness which merciful God justifies us by faith. And as I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. This is a Catholic monk living under this weight of guilt and yet feeling like he could never do enough to assuage that sin that was in him. And he was right. He was absolutely right. And that's when he stood up and said, No, this whole system needs to change. And thus we have the Reformation came out of that. One fellow by the name of Guzik wrote this. The Bible doesn't say we have peace with the devil or peace with the world or peace with the flesh or peace with sin. Life is still a battle for the Christian, but it's no longer a battle against God. It is fighting for him. And there's your difference. Having peace with God, you become, as Chuck said, his friend. You are in the family, and you are now fighting for him, with him, against the sin that's around us. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access to. Interesting word he chose here. It's used only three times in the entire New Testament. It's used here, and it's used in Ephesians. I'm going to read the two places in Ephesians that it's read, used. Ah, get to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two, verse eighteen. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father and Ephesians 3, 11, and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, the New American Standard translates that word as introduction. I think that's a weak word. I'm not sure that's what Paul is intending to say here. I I look at that idea of access because you go into the the, the Greek word itself, prosagoge. It means um, entering into a royal presence. That you are granted an audience. It is also a nautical term for safe harbor when ships can come in and get behind the break so that the waves don't toss the the thing in to and fro in the bay and you can come in and you know lock down you're in a safe place but you are you have access to that safety uh, Ray Steadman went off on a long excursus on Esther and her preparation to meet the king, to be granted access, to be able to influence or to make the appeal. And if we wanna really make this an interesting twist, it, it isn't what the word means necessarily, but think of the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go once a year on the day of atonement And they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle in case he did something wrong while he was behind the curtain and died so they could pull him out. Because no one else wanted to go in there if God struck him dead. But when Christ died on the cross, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. God used the little razor letter opener and went zip from above and opened it up. And we have passages in Hebrews that talks about how Christ gives us access as our high priest into that holy place. Through him we have obtained access. We can Come before the throne of God. You had a, or you just no. I, I go ahead. A comment. No Go ahead. No, please. It so much reminds me. You know, the other word, danger, comes up. It so much reminds me of the description of Aslan. Hmm. Is he safe? No, but he's He's not good. safe. But, but he's, he's good. good. Yeah. You can't forget. He is not safe. God is not. God is talking about. Royal presence or Saint Barbara. I mean, you're the
1: instruction yeah. being in his presence. Yeah.
0: yeah. So we have obtained access by faith into this grace. Well, we've talked about the grace of God before. But think of it this way. This is a a quote from Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H. You don't hear me quoting from him very often. Because in certain circles he's considered this weird German theologian. But he actually had quite an evangelistic flair to him. And in his writings he was actually countering the rank liberalism of German scholarship at the time. So while he wouldn't necessarily be a friend at a very conservative theological seminary, he certainly would have been a thorn in the side of a liberal theological seminary because he would be pressing against their drift. He said this, and this is in his commentary on Romans on this passage. He wrote, into the depth of our predicament, the word is spoken from on high. By grace, you have been saved. To be saved does not just mean to be a little encouraged, or a little comforted, or a little relieved. It means to be pulled out like a log from a burning fire. You have been saved. We are not told you may be saved sometime. We are not told you may be saved a little bit. No, you have been saved totally and for all times. You? Yes, we. Not just any other people more pious and better than we are. No, we, each one of us, have been saved that's what that one little word means through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand Hmm. let's look at that word for a second put on your visual thinking caps so I was trying to think of some silly example and I thought of a silly one. So I think of playing with our three girls when they were little. And of course it's try to pull daddy down. You stand firm in the living room and they're tugging on you, pulling on you, wrestling with climbing up as much as they can and all three of them are trying their best. And just because I'm bigger and stronger than they are, they cannot do anything. And they're laughing, and of course I use the opportunity to tickle them at every moment, which sends them into squeals of delight. But it's this wrestling match, but I am not moving. I am standing, despite the attempt. Now that's a silly example, but it's certainly a picture It's in perfect tense in this passage. The word stand is, which means it's a completed action that happened in the past, but has continuing result. Which means this grace in which we stand is a secure position in the midst of grace, permanently, securely moored, and nothing can knock us to the side. There are a lot of other passages that talk about, you know, we have, despite other attempts to pull us, pull us down, we can stand firm in the grace of God knowing that we are fully saved. And nothing can assail us. What a promise. In a tiny little word. We stand Then comes the next word. We rejoice. Okay, I had a problem with this word. Not for this reason, but I'll get to it in a second. But translations fuss with this particular word. I say a rejoice. Another translation has exalt, Not exalt, A-L-T, E-X-U-L-T to exalt or to lift up, like in praise, or to rejoice. <sighs> Problem is, the root word that's here, it is the Greek word kuchaomai. the acho means to boast. This word is translated boast nine times in other places in the New Testament. Same word. Now that's totally confusing because you come along here, it says, we have, through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast. Well, who says boasting is bad if it's done in a praiseworthy fashion? We see it as we're all full of ourselves when we boast about something we have accomplished. But do we boast about the glory of God and the grace of God when our testimony granted? we... That word, we kind of... We don't use it in that context. But that's what we're talking about right here. It's this idea of exulting or lifting up or rejoicing or boasting in hope of the glory of God. Alright, I'm going to write a word on the board. This is one word we have yet to define in our discussion. It's not come up before. Hope. There is a tribe, apparently, in India, that when the Bible translators went to the country of India, to this particular tribe and their dialect, I think it's T-A-M-I-L, the Tamil language, they don't have a word for this. So, as a group, if English did not have this word, how would you teach it? How would you define it? If, put it in a sentence, you've got somebody and you're talking about the hope of the glory of God, Or all those verses in the Bible about hope. And there are hundreds of them. But you can't use that word. What word are you going to use? Or what phrase are you going to use that's a biblical understanding of this? Not just the word, but the concept behind it. While you're thinking... Because I know this is going to make make your brains hurt a little bit. There are people who live in this world without hope. Because they don't understand what this is. Ephesians 2.12 Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ having no hope. And without God in this world. And Job, he had a little bit of a challenging period of life. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and have come to their end without hope. There are people who get to the end of their rope and they don't understand because they they, they live without this word. They don't even know what it means. So, now that I've given you 20 seconds to come up with a grand Wonderful definition. Give it a shot.
1: Well, I'm putting uh, an asterisk on this to be major, so it's not minor. And I think
0: of a great title of Great Expectations. Great Expectations? Okay.
1: Explain. Oh, well, major, uh, again, yeah. yeah, thinking of. Uh, Hope is something that I look forward to. I expect something, okay. but I expect great things. I'm, okay. I'm looking at it in that vein, not in my
0: Okay, good.
1: So if I'm talking to someone and I say uh, I say uh, you're uh, telling me that uh, you're sick, you, you need to go to the doctor or something, but I expect that you're gonna be healed.
0: That's not I hope you're gonna be healed. Mm-hmm. I expect, okay? That's good. Yeah? Uh, it's not something like I hope it will happen or might happen or won't happen. It's something that will happen.
1: Assurance. Assurance? Of promises.
0: Assurance of?
1: Of uh, promises.
0: Of promises fulfilled. This is good.
1: God's ability to do what we can't do.
0: God's ability to do what we can't do. Okay. That's how I spell. Okay. Yeah, I think it's sometimes translated as um, to wait for. To wait for. But I think that's implicit in that. Uh, the concept of hope is a, also a waiting. Waiting on the Lord or hoping a on. Waiting the Lord. on God. Okay. Good. See how challenging this is. And so much of the Christian life or the Christian message is to bring the gospel of hope to those who are hopeless. But we can't define this. We just rattle it off. And so, you know, um, I actually wrote it down here. Some people will use the word wish. The problem is, wishes don't always come true. And I actually wrote here, um, where is it? I grew up with the Sears and the J.C. Penny catalog, and we called it our wish book. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd flip through it, dog ear, everything we wanted. <clears throat> oh, I want that, I want that, I want that, you know, the dog ear catalog. Um, but the Bible is not a catalog of wishes. expectations assurance this idea of that God is able to do it will happen it's almost as if if you're witnessing or trying to present the good news of the gospel to someone and they don't understand the hope that upon which our faith rests, they're not understanding the totality of the gospel. Because if you take away someone's hope, they probably are not going to live very long. They will give up. They're just, I'm done. Now this is going to be a really kind of a gross example. Sorry. In if in 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 advance, but scientists, as they are wont to do, like to play experiments with um, animals. And they took a rat and put him in a tub of water with sheer sides, and just plopped the rat in the water. And this rat swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming, swimming, and then you know, got to the side and couldn't get up and couldn't get up and after about 20 minutes just started to give up realizing it couldn't go any further so they plucked the rat out, set it aside let it rest for a little while and then put it back in and it swam for two and a half hours because it had hope that it would be rescued. Isn't that interesting? And of course, the scientists make these grand conclusions about us as animals. It just got weird at that point. But anyway, you give a creature with a brain the size of a fingernail tip, hope they will continue knowing there's that possibility of something. us who don't even use all of our brain capacity. And we live as if we have the hope of a future glory in heaven with God for all eternity. And we get laughed at by the secular side who says, well, for one thing, there's no God and you're just deluding yourself. Isn't that interesting? In Romans 5.2, Paul cannot mean wish. He can't even mean trust. Because that's another potential word for hope. Trust is more like faith than it is hope. It's deeper than that. When I was trying to do this, I wrote down the phrase, confident expectation. You had great expectations. So I thought, oh, you stole my thunder. <laughs> Good for you. Um, some other, when I, after I'd written that, I came across another commentator who wrote assured expectation, which I thought was interesting. He combined the word assured expectation knowing that it's going to happen and believing it will happen because we say, well I have faith that this is going to happen. You have faith in what? You have hope in that result. And as a wishing produces anxiety and teaches us disappointment. Hope teaches us assurance in the things that have not yet happened.
1: like you said, without it, I'm not sure about the rat. I have a feeling Jeff was probably more repetition of of memory kind of thing. Um, but um, but humans would take something as hope because without hope truly really, we, we are empty inside. It's, yeah. it's a void, it's darkness, there's nothing.
0: That's our breath is is hope. You think of I think, think of the simplest thing to I think of the uh, person stranded in the middle of the ocean. There's been many stories of people like that and they sit there tread water for days. And they just, they're on the hope that there is going to be a rescue. And then when it happens, people go, well, how did you handle, how did you do that? I believed that there would be that, 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 reser- that rescue would come 1 Corinthians 1:7 To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Hebrews 6:19 Hold fast to the hope before us and we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And Hebrews 10 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So that's Colossians 1 27, Hebrews 6 19, and Hebrews 10 23. One little word in this massive passage. And you just have to step back and go, wow. And we often will just roll right over a word like this. But inside this context, it takes a lot of meaning and a lot of gravitas to use the word. And then verse 3, he says, not only that, as if this wasn't enough. (laughs) It's like, I'm going to ratchet this whole conversation up another level. Not only that, but we boast, same word. Or we have rejoice, it's the same word. Or exult. And this is where I have a little problem with Paul. Because he's using the word, and he's not talking about hope now. He's talking about the absolute opposite. We boast, we exult in our suffering. Wait a minute, Paul. You had me, last the last verse. Okay, I'm ready to cheer you on and go, Yay! You know, you're the greatest speaker I've ever heard. And then you come to me and go, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I suspect that many of us in this room have read verse three and four a hundred times because you've run into something or circumstances or whatever and we have to believe that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance or perseverance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's agape has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How often have circumstances financial, relational, physical whatever have come upon us and it's just it's painful either literal or emotional. And we come to this verse and he's saying, we need to rejoice in this. Ah, thanks a lot Paul. Easy for you to say, oh wait. Uh, if you go into 2 Corinthians, he kind of talks about a few little you know, incidents that he had that uh, kind of put us to shame when you realize what he suffered for Christ but knowing that suffering produces endurance or perseverance, depending on your translation. Obviously a word like that comes out when you start thinking about runners, those who are the marathon runners, which are. Anybody here run a marathon? Good, because I will shame you.
1: I I, I did in one semester. (laughs)
0: What <laughs> semester? It took you three months to run the marathon. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but there's that, it's 26 miles. I mean, my goodness sake, that's craziness. Or the ultra-marathoners, who not only do it once. I mean, I was just reading about somebody who's doing a marathon, I think it's two marathons a week in different cities across the country as a way to raise money. <sighs> anyway that that's and there's a couple marathoners in our our congregation and i've talked to them about their endurance and they just they, just, they love they love the, the the thrill of that i was a not a runner per se in track i was more of a jumper but when i got to college there was one time i took a class of, it was a pe class technically it was a weightlifting class and i didn't want to do weightlifting so I asked the professor if I could just run the trail behind the college, because there was one that went behind the dorms and around the neighborhood. And he goes, okay, see you when you get back. So I would run the trail and come back. and I do it again, and I do it again, and I do it again, and I was starting to get um, more adapt at it. So he finally decided to make a race out of it with the class and he incorporated it into our class itself. The nature of it when you are running, you can push yourself each time you run it. So you're a little bit faster than you were the time before. Not dramatic jumps, but little by little by little by little because your lungs and your, your legs get used to the pain it produces endurance. The pain, the suffering, indu- produces endurance. And I would always run until I threw up. Oh jeez. That's how I knew I was done. Oh, I literally would push myself until I couldn't just collapse. I know, it's kind of a weird weird person, but that's <laughs> what I did. So later in that semester, again the Athletic director decided to have some kind of an intramural thing where we did a variety of activities and they were gonna do a mile run. So I said, I'll do that. Now, technically I'd been training for this event. And we started out, I won the race by 150 yards, not feet. I lapped three of the guys in in the race, four times around the track because I had been working it not that I was the fastest guy in the school, but I had been working it. Oh, need to let her in? No. No? Yeah, no. <laughs> we, we voted to let you back in. It was, it was unanimous. <laughs> but the idea is that you can train, but it was through suffering. Did I have a coach pushing me that way? No, it was personal effort. Suffering produces endurance and then that endurance produces character. Now, I'm not gonna say as a runner, I became a better person because I gave up after that event and I never did anything like that again. That's not smart. Anyway, um, the word character here is the Greek word, dokime which means to prove by testing. For example, you have a metallurgist can be working with silver. The problem with silver, it's a very malleable metal. It doesn't hold its shape and it's easily dented. So they create sterling silver by mixing in 7% non-silver, usually copper. make it hard and still shapeable. That's where sterling silver comes from. Or you have tempered steel. So you have you're working with iron and if you heat it to a certain level, let it cool, it's very brittle. Very brittle. You don't build with typical iron. You have to temper it, which means heating it To a certain level, not so it melts, not so it becomes brittle, but that it becomes more tough, not more hard. And that toughness means it can survive more stress. They actually found a tempered axe in Galilee that they date to 1200 B.C. Tempered iron was most likely invented by the Hittites and brought into Galilee. And that technology, the Iron Age, uh, was, was developed. So you have this idea of suffering. We're supposed to rejoice in it because it produces endurance, which produces character. And that character produces this, hope and hope does not disappoint, New American Standard says does not disappoint, because God's agape has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The phrase God's agape and Holy Spirit is the first time either phrase has been used in Romans. First time is here. And I also notice the word poured I was talking to Lisa about this last night. I couldn't stop thinking about that word. God's love, his agape. I mean, in, in the Greek and pagan world, gods didn't love people, they lusted after them or they destroyed them. They didn't love them, certainly not agape love. And they never, never were concerned about the unwanted or the unholy. They just, there was no love in them. Not like this. And this love has been poured into our hearts. And I was remembering an incident way back in oh goodness, it would have been nineteen seventy. Nine. we figured out it must have been in Mississippi somewhere we were on this singing uh, drama tour and uh, Lisa and I had be gun liking each other a little bit more at that point she started out hating my guts but that's another story um, <coughs> and, when
1: God is number 8 on your list of top
0: 10 things in okay well whatever um, <laughs> I say she saw the light, she say I changed. Anyway, um, but we were, she and I were out walking down this road, I can't even remember where. I just had this mental picture of these green trees and this gorgeous thing and then suddenly a storm came out of nowhere and we could not run fast enough to get out from under it. And we were not dressed for it. We didn't have coats. And within seconds, we were drenched. I mean, absolutely drenched. And we just looked at each other and just started to laugh. And at that point, who cares? There's a puddle. Let's jump in it. And we were just having this grand old time. We finally got back to wherever it was we were being housed. And yeah, we looked like... uh, We had been rained on pretty heavily. And I thought of that picture when I saw this word. That's the Holy Spirit. This word poured is the same word that is used in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Of the Spirit being poured onto the people. And filling them to the brim. And the word poured is perfect tense. Which means it's complete. It's completely filled. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and we're on verse 5. Oh well, I guess we won't do the other, uh, other six verses today. Um, as we've already reached the end of our time. Um, but isn't this glorious? When you start... Realizing what Paul is attempting to describe in the beauty of the relationship and the gift that God has given us. If we just meditate on this and think about it and put it to memory. What a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. For giving us the chance to dig deeply into your word. To Look at each word that has such richness and such intentionality, your inspiration to Paul, to have it written, to be sent to strangers in Rome and to be preserved for 2,000 years so that we can read it today and be blessed by it, that is a miracle in and of itself. And we can only praise your name and thank you for your grace in giving us this opportunity and your grace in giving us your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.